Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's turn to Judges chapter 4. And you remember the crazy story last week about King Eglon, fatso, obese calf, that got murdered by the left-handed, right-handed man, Ehud. This week, things get even more exciting. So, um, so let's pick up in, Jud- in Judges chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4 and 5 tonight because both of these chapters are basically considered, are considered a literary unit. Uh, chapter 4 tells the story of Deborah and Barak in prose fashion. Chapter 5 recounts that story in a song. So it's almost like, a, like it's in poetry. So chapter 4 is prose, chapter 5 is poetry, talking about the same event. Um, and so it's kind of a masterful way that the writer of Judges puts together the same event, but with two basically literary styles of telling it. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again, he word again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now we're starting to see a pattern, aren't we? The people do evil. They get sold. They get oppressed. They cry out. What does God do? God delivers them through a judge. They get saved. The cycle starts all over again. But I want you to notice something here for a moment. What does verse 1 tell us? The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now here's a pattern we're going to see in Judges. When the spiritual or the national leader is leading them, the people are obedient. But once the leader dies, and there's no leader in Israel, the people fall back into that pattern of bondage. What we find in these Israelites is there really is no true... You write the word up here. We really see no genuine repentance, do we? So let's talk about what genuine repentance is. Genuine repentance means living a life of repentance from sin instead of continual bondage to sin. What are they always going back to? Doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows whose are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord do what? Depart from iniquity. So if you name the name of Jesus, if you name the name of the Lord, if you're a believer, you are to live a life that's departing. What's departing mean? You're walking away. You're walking away from sin, which is what repentance is. Repentance means walking away from sin. 1 John 2, 
3 through 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. If you claim the name of Christ, you are to live a life of continual, genuine, gospel repentance. Okay, so before we move forward in the book of Judges, because it comes up all the time, let's talk about repentance. What is, and I use the term gospel repentance. The Puritans would sometimes call it evangelical repentance, gospel repentance, as opposed to just feeling bad that you got caught. Okay? Let me give you guys a key passage of scripture in the Bible that will help you deal with sin. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are we called to do? What's the word used there? Put to death. Okay, does anybody have the old King James Version? Anybody here have a King Jimmy? Nobody here? Okay. I'll give you the word from the King Jimmy. Mortify. You need to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It means to kill, to put to death. Okay? So, we are called by God to be continually putting to death sin. Now, is there a difference between... What's the difference between kind of wounding something and killing something? What's the difference? If you wound something, it will what? Come back. back, Okay. If you kill something, now we're never going to kill sin in this life. Okay. You're never going to get to the point where you have no sin. You're sin free. You're perfect. But repentance is this constant daily killing or putting to death sin. Let me give you a quote from an old Puritan, John Owen. It's not in your notes, but he said this. You must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Okay? And I want you to notice also, it says, by the Spirit. This is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this in your own power. You can't do this in your own strength. This is a daily, moment-by-moment process whereby you ask the Holy Spirit for help to repent. To put to death sin. To walk not according to the flesh. So let me give you four key truths tonight before we even start that will help us understand what it means to put to death sin. Because that's the problem with Israel. They're not putting to death sin. They're not killing sin. Look at verse 1. The people of Israel, what's the key word there? Again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again. And again, and again, we talked about this pattern, this cycle, this bondage, if you will, that they keep going back to sin patterns over and over and again. So really what they're not doing is they're not practicing repentance. So what is repentance? Let me give you four truths about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, (laughs) repenting. First of all, here's the first one. We must have a seething hatred for sin as the destructive enemy it truly is. And I use that word very carefully, a seething hatred. You've got to hate sin. Romans 12, 9 says, 
abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I've got an alert coming up on my screen. There we go. Um, Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. Okay, hate what is evil. What is evil? Is sin evil? Should we hate sin? Yeah, we should hate it with a sorrow. We should hate it with a seething hatred. So you've got to, first of all, get to the point where you actually hate sin. What's the opposite of hating sin? Loving, Loving sin. It's easy to love sin, right? Because it's part of our, our nature. <laughs> hate sin. Okay, so the first one is that you've got to hate sin. Second, we need to seriously think about the guilt and the corruption of sin. The guilt and corruption of sin. What does sin do? It corrupts. What does corrupt mean? Destroy. It destroys, it eats at you, it, it taints... It makes things dirty. Um, sin is bittersweet, is it not? Job talks about Job chapter 20, verses 12 through 14. He's got an interesting statement, Job does. He says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach, it is the venom of cobras within him. Here's the image, okay? You, you got this nice piece of candy or chocolate. And when you first put it in your mouth, what does it taste like? Really sweet, really nice. But as it starts to stay in your mouth, what happens? It gets really bitter. It makes your stomach, it makes your stomach turn. You want to vomit it out. But instead of vomiting it out, what do you do? I want to keep sucking on that thing. I want to keep chewing on that. I want to, I want to keep that thing in my mouth because it was so sweet. And that's what sin does. At first, sin appears sweet. It looks so good. It tastes good. But then once it gets in you, once it begins to corrupt you, what does it end up doing? It makes you sick. But sometimes we just don't want to get rid of it. One thing we need to realize, too, is there's no such thing as, quote, innocent little sins. All sin is offensive to God, and little sins actually lead to more grievous sins. Do you, know, do you realize that little sins lead to bigger sins? If you say, I want, you know, it's just a little bitty sin, not that big of a deal, the next time, what are you going to say? Little sin, not that big of a deal. Next time, it's going to compound to even greater sins. Okay? Third thing about repentance and putting to death sin, or mortification, as the King James calls it, it involves examining the shock and utter danger of sin. Now, what do I mean by examining the, the, the shock and utter danger of sin? We need to just remind ourselves how utterly destructive and dangerous sin is. Think clearly about sin. How has it damaged you in the past? How has it reared its ugly head for you in the past? What would happen to you if you plunged headlong into that sin? What would be the consequences? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. I like the way he says it. He says, we have to pull sin out. Pull it out. Look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, then you've really dealt with it. Pull that sin out and look at it and say, oh, that's really, that's, that's ugly, that's offensive. I need to hate that, I need to run from that. Sinclair Ferguson says, refuse it, starve it, and reject it. You cannot mortify sin without the pain of the kill. There's no other way. Starve it. Okay. 
Fourthly, we must be intimate with our particular areas of weaknesses and subsequently avoid areas or situations where we would be vulnerable. I guarantee you, if I were to get all of you in a room individually, we're not going to do this, okay, so this is not pastoral counseling, but if I were to say, okay, after tonight, each of you are going to come into my office and we're going to have a talk. And I were to say to you, can you tell me what that one besetting sin is that you struggle with over and over and over again? You'd be able to answer it just like that, would you not? Now, I'm not going to ask you to do that, but I think all of us have a particular area of weakness that we know we're susceptible to fall into. And it's probably different for all of us. Let's talk about Proverbs chapter 5, 3 through 8. This is the, um, the lips of the forbidden woman or the enticing prostitute. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow to the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way from her, and do not even go near the door of her house. What's he saying? Don't even get near sin. If you know you have a particular area of weakness, don't even get near it. What are we tempted to think? I can handle it this time. And then what ends up happening? You don't handle it. Because it's an area of weakness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. So let's talk about when you, when you begin to do these things. Okay? So when you begin to consistently hate sin with a holy passion, you seriously contemplate the guilt and corruption of that sin. You remain in a state of shock over its devastating effects, and you constantly expose it in all of its deception and destruction. You are, in fact, repenting. Through repentance, we are then weakening. You're not ultimately getting rid of it, but you're weakening sin in our lives. Slowly, sometimes it's very slow, through this painful process of mortification, you begin to see progress that you're making in godliness as sin gets weaker and weaker. So repentance, killing sin, putting sin to death, is not something that you put it in the microwave, put it on for 30 seconds, and boom, it comes out and you're done. Microwave magic Christianity does not work. We wish it did. <laughs> Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's grueling, sometimes you take three steps forward and then take five steps back. But if you constantly practice this hating sin, running from sin, repenting of sin, through time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sin becomes weaker in your life. You're never going to get rid of it, but it will become weaker over time, and it may be painful. So the problem with Israel is what? They are not repenting. When things are going good, they're doing good. But when their leader leaves or their leader dies and things get comfortable, things get kind of on cruise control, then they fall back into these patterns. Let me ask you a question. Do you need a pastor always 100% of your life to make sure that you walk closely with the Lord? Hope not, because I don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to do that. 
But what is Israel thinking? As long as we got a leader, we're good. You know, as long as somebody holds us together, but once the leader dies or once somebody's out of the picture, then that whole structure of repentance, that whole structure of obedience just goes out the window, which means that phone just says United States. It's the United States is calling. Would you like answers? All right. All right. So here we go. Let's get into the story of Deborah. So I just wanted to I just wanted to introduce this from the very beginning. Those of you that were on Facebook Live, I just got a phone call coming in, so that's probably why it messed up there for a little bit. Okay, so I wanted to talk about gospel repentance before we started because I wanted you to notice that Israel did again, again what was evil inside the, the Lord. It's this pattern, this this downward spiral. Okay, now let's talk about Deborah and Barak. So let's pick up in, in chapter four, verse four through sixteen. Now Deborah. A prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Higoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Higolim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. All right, very interesting story because we're introduced to a female judge, Deborah. Her name means bee, like a, a buzzing bee. She is a prophetess. Occasionally in the Bible, in both Testaments, we see a female who serves as a prophetess. Miriam, Moses' sister, Exodus 15.20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Okay, so she was a prophetess. Okay, in the New Testament, in Luke Chapter 2, 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. 
Now, where does she position herself, Deborah? She put, verse four or verse five says she positioned herself in the hill country of Ephraim between Ramah and Bethel. Now, you, I don't have a map of Israel here, but basically, what she's done is she's centrally located herself in the middle of Israel so that everybody could get to her very easily. But here's the question that you may not have asked, that you should be asking, especially all through the book of Judges. Why are the people coming to Deborah instead of to the Levitical priests? Somehow the priesthood had lost its influence in Israel and was no longer giving godly direction to the people. Who was responsible in Israel for teaching the people, discipling the people, mentoring the people? The priests. Up to this point in the book of Judges, we're only four chapters in, have you heard mention of any of the priests? No. They're markedly absent. Back in Leviticus 10, 11, Talking to the Levite priest, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. They're to teach all the people. That's what the Levites are to do. They're to teach the people, disciple the people. Now, later on in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 17, 9, the Levites, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. And here's the point. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Okay, so the responsibility of the Levite priests was that they were to be the pastors to the people. Okay? They were to go into all the villages. They were to go into all the tribes. They were to systematically teach the people God's word so that they would obey. Okay? This is before the synagogue system. The synagogue had not happened yet. All there was was the tabernacle and the temple. So throughout Israel, the priest had the responsibility to go into the villages, to go into the tribes, especially to teach the dads so they could teach their families. And one thing that you see in the book of Judges is that you do not see qualified, practicing Levitical priests teaching God's word to the people. And let's just ask an obvious question. What happens when that when that what happens to a nation when there's no teaching? They begin to what? <laughs> they go back to the cycle, okay? So let's make this very practical for us today. Obviously, we don't have a priesthood. I'm not a priest. I don't play one on TV. I'm a pastor. We don't have priests anymore. But let's talk about this. What happens in a church when the spiritual leaders are either inept or inadequate at teaching God's word to the people. What happens in a church if that happens? Church you got what? Church dies. The church dies. So is it vitally important that pastors and elders and leaders are qualified men who can teach? And not only that, but they actually practice it. Okay? Let's talk about qualifications of elders here and pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer. That's an elder, a pastor, an overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable, respectable, hospitable, able to what? Teach. So, 
there's one elder in the room, so I'm not going to pick on all of them. But as elders, we are supposed to be able to teach. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our elders can preach, but it does mean that all of our elders have to be solid in theology and doctrine to where they can give sound instruction. Now, all of our elders are teachers. They either teach in the growth groups, they either teach in all, all different areas of the life of the church. First, or Titus 1.9, talking about elders as well. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the people are coming to Deborah. Now it says there in verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now, at first glance, it makes it almost sound like they were coming to her for civil disputes. Like she was a judge, they came to her to, to like, somebody's suing me, or there are civil disputes. We need somebody to, to legislate, to, to be a judicial person, to judge, to handle court cases. And that's not really what she was doing. That word in the original language meant instead of going to the priest for spiritual counsel, for discipleship, for godly advice, she was the only one left in Israel that people could go to because the priest had become so inept and so absent in the responsibility. So they're coming to her for godly wisdom. They're coming to her for godly advice. Now, I'm not faulting her for that. I'm just showing you that in the nation of Israel, there is an absence of male qualified spiritual leadership. And so they're going to Deborah. Now, she, in verse 6, sends for Barak. Barak means lightning. That's what his name means. Lightning. And she says to Barak, in verse 6, Hey, God, God's commanded you, as the leader of our army, get 10,000 of your men, and, go draw, and, and I'll go with you, and we'll draw out Sisera, the general of the king's army. So, out of the blue, you're introduced to Barak. And Deborah just says, Hey, you're the man. Now, Barak is a little hesitant to do this, isn't he? Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. What's he saying? Um, the only reason I'm going to do this is if, you know, because you are, she was perceived as the spiritual leader of Israel. You, if you're the mouthpiece of God, if, if God's on your side, if you're the judge, if you're, if you're God's person for such a time as this in Israel, the only way I'm going to go fight the battle is if I know you're going with me because you represent God. Now, question. Who fights the battle and who gets the glory? Look at verse 9. She said, her answer to him is, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Kind of cryptic here, okay? Barak, you're the general. You're going to lead 10,000 men into battle, but you're not going to get credit for the, for the victory. You're not going to get the glory. 
As a matter of fact, there's going to be a woman involved. She's going to, sister is going to die at the hand of a woman. Now at this point, who's the only woman we've been introduced to? So as a reader, you're thinking, okay, Deborah must be the one that's going to go out there and, and she's going to um, lead the army and Deborah is going to be the one that gets the credit. But does it say Deborah? It just says the hand of a woman. So we'll leave that out there hanging for you to find out who this woman is. You can read ahead and find out. But for right now, we don't know. It's just a woman. But verse 15 is the key to this entire chapter. What does verse 15 say? Okay, so they go, they fight. Deborah says to Barak, get up, go, fight Sisera. Look at verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Who won the battle? Circle that word, the Lord routed. Okay, routed. I don't know what your translation says, routed. It really means to throw into a panic. We don't know how God did that, but somehow their army got thrown into a panic. Other places in the Old Testament, it also means God brought a powerful thunderstorm. So it could be, this is just conjecture, that God brought a powerful thunderstorm onto that army and their chariots got stuck in the mud and a mass confusion that God came in and miraculously routed them through supernatural means like a thunderstorm. Um, Joshua 10, 10 to 11, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. The Lord threw them into a panic. It's the same, the same word there. Uh, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them. There were more who died because of the hailstones and the son of Israel killed by the storm. So hailstorm, it could have been a hailstorm, it could have been a thunderstorm, panic. 1 Samuel seven ten. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. That's often what God did back in the day. When Israel was, was fighting, God would come in and throw the other army into confusion. Now, I don't know how God did that, um, but, but you, can, you can picture, I mean, you've seen movies of battle scenes, and you can picture 900 chariots, major battle coming, and then everything just goes into chaos. Because God did it. Supernatural. Psalm 144, verse 6. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them, and send out your arrows and rout them. So what does God do? God comes as a mighty warrior and kills a bunch of men. Now, here's another question for us to struggle with tonight. Why is our current evangelical culture so uncomfortable with a warrior God who brings justice against his enemies? <coughs> Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? The God in the Old Testament was wrathful and vengeful. The God in the New Testament's loving. You ever heard anybody say that? Okay, that, that's, a, that's an ancient heresy, which basically says there's a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. I would submit to you, God is more wrathful in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament. You're like, huh? 
The Old Testament, all God did was destroy people and army. In the New Testament, we're introduced to more clear teachings on hell. It wasn't just God routed them on the battlefield. It's eternal conscious torment in hell. So in the 1950s, a theologian named Richard Niebuhr. Oh, I'm sorry. Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's Jesus coming at the end on a white horse to make war. In the 1950s, uh, there was a theologian named Richard Niebuhr. And this was about the this was kind of during the rise of liberalism in America when some of the mainline Protestant denominations were going liberal. Listen to what he said. This was in the 1950s, but I think it could be said today. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So let me ask you a question. Is God holy and righteous and a warrior God? Is God loving and compassionate and merciful? So which one wins out? Trick question. Anytime you try to pit one attribute of God over another and elevate it, you've taken away the what we call the simplicity of God. God is one. God is the sum total of all of his attributes. You can't say God's more loving than he is wrathful. Because if, if you do that, you're saying there's degrees of something in God that's greater when God is the totality of who he is. So in the Old Testament, God simply routed his enemies by killing them on the battlefield. In the New Testament, we have the teaching about hell. God sends his, the people that don't trust in Christ to hell. So let's talk about hell for a moment because I think the subject of hell is one of those topics that's pretty unpleasant. We don't like to talk about it a lot. Why are we so afraid to discuss the reality of hell? I mean, there's, we don't talk, we, I talk about it, but I think in evangelical culture, we don't talk about hell maybe as much as we should. Because I think we're afraid we're going to offend people. Um, it's not a pleasant subject. Let me give you four views of hell. Four major views on the subject of hell as far as what happens to a person when they die. There's probably more, but let me give you the four major views. Okay? The first, I'm going to give you the, what I call the historic orthodox or the biblical view or the view that we hold to. And that is that hell is a real place of, of eternal conscious torment for those who die without a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a literal place. It's eternal, which means it lasts forever. People are conscious there. And it's a place of torment. A second view, which is gaining a lot of traction, as a matter of fact, about, I don't know, was it last, two Christmases ago, I, I did a debate on a podcast with um, a gentleman I respect. I think, he's a, I think he's a conservative evangelical, believes probably 95% of what I believe, but he believes in annihilationism, or what they call conditional mortality. Okay? Annihilationism is another view. This is what Seventh-day Adventists, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses, this is what some... Some evangelical Christians believe. Basically, this view states that after the wicked have suffered the penalty of God's wrath for a time, God will simply annihilate them and they'll no longer exist. So they don't deny hell. 
God does send people to hell, but it's not forever. We don't know exactly how long that period of punishment is, but once it's enough, instead of being an eternal soul living forever, they just are destroyed and that, that person ceases to exist altogether. Well, I could go into a lot. The question for those of you on, because I have to repeat the questions you guys ask, because last week I had comments that people on Facebook like, we didn't hear the question. The question for Facebook Live people is, what do they base that view on? I could go into, I could maybe like go into that at another time, Glenn, but when I did that debate with, um, with Chris, they have some views. Um, they have some reasoning based upon their understanding. It's not like they just came up with this out of the blue. Um, they've, they actually use the scriptures and they, they look at it differently. They have a different understanding of the word eternal and they have a different word understanding of the word punishment. Uh, they actually think it means more destruction. Like when we hear the word destroy, they think it like means totally ceasing to exist. Whereas we would say it's eternal punishment. So there's a lot of different things they come up with. I don't know if that, if that doesn't fully answer your question, Glenn, but good question. They, here's, here's why it's called conditional. They don't believe in eternity. Here's why they call it conditional mortality. They believe that only Christians have eternality because in the regeneration of the soul, when you become a Christian, you are given an immortal soul that lives forever. Non-believers are not given the immortality of the soul, so therefore only Christians will live forever. Non-Christians will be punished for a period and I'll ask them I said well what's that period is it like a thousand years is it ten minutes nobody knows that answer that question because the Bible doesn't teach that period so I don't, does that answer your question Sue yeah so and it's called annihilationism or conditional mortality it's gaining more and more traction uh, Chris who's a friend of mine on Facebook you may be watching the guy I debated with um, I think he's written a book on this he's got a podcast he's got a website he's really promoting this um, I think he's been turned down by some publishers because his view is a little bit outside orthodox on this particular subject. Um, but it's gaining a little bit more traction. Okay. Number three, for those of you that kind of grew up Catholic, there's the purgatory view. Uh, purgatory is a place or condition in the next world between heaven and hell where those who die need to be purified or purged, that's what the purgatory, purged through suffering until the final judgment when once they've suffered enough for their sins, they may be able to enter heaven purgatory now i know you're going to ask me this question so i'll answer it for you where do they get this from the bible is that the question you're asking okay that's like that laverne and shirley episode how do you say meatloaf in french you don't where do they get this in the bible they don't okay it's not in the bible okay where do they get it it's in the non-inspired apocryphal writings that we as Protestants do not accept. The Catholic Bible has what's called the Apocrypha, those books in between the Old and New Testament. It's in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 42 and 45, where it speaks of Judas Maccabeus going to the temple with an offering of silver to make atonement for the dead where the person might be delivered for their sin. So their doctrine of purgatory does not come from what we as Protestants would consider the canonical Bible, Genesis to Malachi, Matthew through Revelation. It comes from the Apocrypha. And it was pretty much developed later on in Roman Catholic theology. It wasn't, it wasn't even early. And don't ask me the date. Um, so, so you got the biblical view, which is eternal tor conscious torment in hell. 
you got annihilationism, you got purgatory, and then the fourth view, universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. They'll say hell is really what we're experiencing in this messed up world, and God will make everything right in the end. There's no such thing as a literal hell. Right now it's hell on earth, and it's really bad, and we have to suffer, but in the end God will make all things good, and everybody gets to go to heaven. You can reject that outright, can't you? Okay. Let me just give you two, te- one scripture from the Old Testament, one scripture from the New Testament that teach on hell. I don't want to spend all night on this. I'm just saying that when you come across these passages in the scripture where God routes somebody or God destroys his enemy or God does something that we don't quite understand, we oftentimes want to sanitize God or sanitize the Bible and say, well, God would never act like a warrior or punish people. We need to realize that Yes, he does. Um, Isaiah 66, uh, 22 through 24. For as that new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. For from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their Fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus talks about a place in hell where the worm will not die, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Matthew 10, 28-31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus talked about hell more than Paul talked about it, more than Peter talked about it, more than anybody talked about it. And the term hell is an interesting term. The term hell is from the Greek word Gehenna, the valley of Henon. It was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where criminals were, bur- were buried and trash was burned continuing. You can look to the south of Jerusalem and see the continual rising of smoke to remind you that hell is a place of eternal smoke. Okay? All right. Now that we've talked about hell, let's talk about graphic scenes of death. Last week we saw a comical scene of death. Here's kind of a graphic scene of death. Okay, are you ready? Let's go back to Judges, verse 17. Remember what Deborah said to, to, um, to Barak? You're not going to get the glory for this battle. The glory is going to go to a woman. Okay, so here we go, verse 17. But Sisera, okay, he's the general. Everybody's been routed except for him. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, or Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And she said to her, or he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. 
And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Here we have another violent, graphic death. Tent spike. What's happened? What's the story? Sister is hiding out. She covers him with a rug. She gives him milk, possibly to make him go to sleep. And what does he tell her? I'm hiding out here. If anybody comes, don't tell him anybody's here. And she said, sure thing. So while he's sleeping, what does she do? She takes a tent peg and a hammer and jabs it through the, his temple. Pins him to the ground. That's a pretty graphic way. And it's by the hand of a woman. Okay? Now, we may be bothered by this, the way we were bothered by the left-handed assassin. And you may ask a question. Why is the Bible so graphic? Especially Judges. Why is it graphic? Why do these details have to be in there? What are we to think of this? I mean, when you, when you stop and think of this, you're like, am I supposed to be like, yay? Or am I supposed to be like, like Casey, like, hmm. <laughs> am I supposed to be like, this is kind of weird. This is not something I go to for warm fuzzies when I want to read my Bible. So you come across what we call Hebrew narrative. The judges is what we call a Hebrew narrative. What's narrative? It tells, when I say a story, it's not a made-up story, but it, it gives an account of what happens. So let's talk about narratives, okay? This is going to help you in understanding Hebrew or Old Testament narratives. These are just some principles. What narratives are not, okay? These are not just mere stories about people who lived in Old Testament times. They're first and foremost stories about what God did to and through those people. Number two, these stories are not allegories filled with hidden meanings. So we're not supposed to say, okay, Sisera is sin and jail is the Holy Spirit and the tent peg is the word of God, and she used the hammer, and she killed sin. That's the symbolism in the story. Some people come up with weird interpretations like that, where they find hidden meanings and everything. Sometimes it's just a flat out, here's the story. There's no hidden meaning. Okay. Another thing about narratives, what they're not, is they do not always teach directly. Can you come away with this with a direct teaching? Like when you, read Paul's, when you read Paul's writings, you pretty much know what you're being taught, right? When you read something like this, you walk away like, what am I supposed to learn from this? Okay. And then number four, each individual narrative, so this is an individual narrative right here, okay? This individual narrative or episode does not necessarily have a moral all of its own. Sometimes many narratives together make up a bigger part. And so you sometimes have to read further chapters to understand bigger units of 
of, of literary chunks to find out exactly what's going on there. Okay? So let's talk about principles for interpreting. When you read these, like when you do your Bible reading, or when you read these Old Testament stories, especially, I mean, obviously in the Old Testament, and you're like, man, this is confusing. I don't understand what's going on. Why did that happen? What's going on here? Let me give you, um, I think there's 10 here. 10 principles for understanding Hebrew narratives, okay? Number one, it usually does not directly teach a doctrine. So if you're looking for a direct doctrine to be taught, sometimes it won't jump out at you. It's not taught directly. But number two, it usually illustrates a doctrine that is taught propositionally elsewhere. Okay? What does it mean to illustrate a doctrine? What's a doctrine? Thou shalt not steal. Okay? Sometimes a story may illustrate stealing and what happened. It may not come out and directly teach that you shouldn't steal, but it illustrates what, what stealing is. Okay? Here's one that you need to understand. Two. Narratives record what actually happened not what should have happened or what we thought ought to have happened. There's sometimes you want to rewrite the Bible, right? And like we got to we got to go back and rewrite this because this is not the way it's supposed to end. They are recording what historically actually happened. Okay, here's another thing. Number 4. What people do in narratives is not necessarily a good example for us. Now, what would be a wrong application? Okay, now go out there and get your tent spikes and go kill somebody in their temple. Because God will, you'll get the glory, and, and God will deliver your enemy. Only if you're a woman. Only if you're a woman. Yeah. So here's the here's the practical application. All you women, if you have an enemy in your life, somebody in your coworker, the biblical principle is: go get your tent spike, go get your hammer, invite them into your tent, cover them up, give them some milk, or some something to inebriate them, and then put the tent spike to their head. Okay. Is that a practical application? Is that an example? Okay. So. Number five, most, uh, most of the characters in the Old Testament narratives are far from perfect as well as their actions. Probably, if you were to look at Old Testament characters, probably the one character who had the least amount of flaws was probably Joseph. Just right off the top of my head. But most of the Old Testament characters had major flaws. Even the heroes we hold up to, like Abraham and Moses and David. Here's another thing that's kind of frustrating, but you also need to understand. Number six, we are not always told at the end of a narrative whether what happened was good or bad. For example, right here. Is there an editorial comment saying, thus Jael did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord? Are we told what, what, whether it was, thus Jael did what was evil? There's no commentary, it's just, that happened. We're not told whether it was good or bad. Number seven. All narratives are selective and incomplete, which means that not all the juicy details are given, and you're only given what God wants you to know. There's probably a whole bunch of other events that happened historically that are not recorded. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are given what God wants us to know. Number eight, they are not written to answer all of our theological questions. Number nine, Narratives may teach either explicitly, they clearly teach something, or implicitly, implying it without actually saying. And here's probably the most important, and we see it in this story right here. 
Here's the 10th and probably the most important. In the final analysis, God is the hero and main character of all biblical narratives. Who is the hero in this story? Is it Jael or is it God? God routed Israel. Now, there's human actors on the stage. There's Deborah, there's Barak, there's Jael, but ultimately God is the main hero. When I was taking Old Testament for my doctoral um, seminars, we had to read a book by Dale, Dale Ralph Davis. It was called The Word Became Fresh. And I just want to share with you a little bit of what he talked about because he had a chapter in that book. He called it Nasties. The chapter was called Nasties. He defines nasties are those difficult, shocking, and sometimes messy portions that preachers often fail to handle out of fear of tackling such controversial issues. In other words, he has to say, most preachers don't want to handle the nasties. Because if you handle a nasty in the Old Testament, that means you've got to deal with all the mess of it. So most pastors are tempted just to, let's just skip over that this week. And you do expository preaching, and, and like you come to the next chapter, and you're, like, you're a pastor, like, ooh, I don't know if I want to tackle this. This is a nasty. So what do you do? Just skip it. What do the people say? Why'd you skip that chapter? You coward. You didn't want to deal with the nasty. So, yes, we have nasties. He says this. Let me give you a quote. He says, Don't be afraid to wade into the nasty narratives of the Old Testament. For it's in the nasty stuff you'll find the God of scary holiness and incredible grace awaiting to reveal himself. And what have we often done? We have often sometimes quote-unquote, sanitized the Old Testament. It fits into our neat and compartmentalized 21st century categories of piety instead of allowing the nasties to be exactly what they're meant to be. Nasties. Okay. And here's what he said. Another quote. We don't, truth be told, want some God we have to fear, which is to say, we don't want the real God. We want a God we can control. We want a God that's tidy. We want a God that in some ways is like a Brady Bunch ending. Those of you that are old enough to remember the Brady Bunch. I don't even know what modern day sitcoms are so different now. I didn't watch sitcoms, but I'm thinking, you know, you have a problem at the beginning of the sitcom, it gets wrapped up, the parents come in and fix everything, and at the end of this thing, everything is hunky-dory. You move on to the next week. Sometimes the Bible leaves you hanging with a nasty this is a nasty. Now, I said don't allegorize, but let's just think a little bit about the hammer. I'm not saying Jael's hammer is literally the word of God, but symbolically, in a way, uh, Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fly, fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Here's the bottom line of this story. It does not have a neat, tidy ending. It is very graphic. It goes against convention because what do you have? You have a woman this time killing the king. So who do we expect? When this story was set up, who do you expect to be the hero? Either Deborah or Barak, right? But probably Barak because he was... But, but what does Deborah say to him? You're not going to receive the glory. It's going to go to a woman. Okay, then we think, okay, the woman's got to be Deborah. Because she's the leader of Israel. We have this no-name woman, Jael, that just comes out of the blue. And how does she win? She hammers a spike through the guy's temple. And he dies. 
Okay? And we walk away from this thinking, that's interesting. Well, what's the point? That goes against everything I've thought about. And that's exactly the point. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not um, God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. And here's an interesting verse. We talked about this in my men's study this week because we looked at this passage of scripture. Those of you guys that are on my Monday morning. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Is God foolish? Is God weak? What does Paul here say? Even if God were foolish or weak, it's still far more greater than the most powerful thing that man can put up against God. So the point is, God oftentimes does not do things in the way we would expect. This is one of those things where it's, it goes against conventional wisdom. It's nasty. It's messy. It's graphic. So what's the point? Here's the point. Battling, this battle I talked about, putting to death sin, killing sin, repentance, this whole sin pattern stuff. Battling the world, the flesh, and the devil is messy business. And sometimes God uses unconventional means to bring about our redemption for his glory. Let me just, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but... How many of you can attest to the fact that your battle with the world and flesh and devil is sometimes messy? And sometimes nasty. And sometimes you look back like, why did I go through that? And what, what was God doing? And then you look back and you realize that it may have been the weirdest thing you went through. Or the most painful thing you went through. But God used it for his glory to bring about your growth in a way that you would have never chosen to go through that. If you were to say, God, this is how I want you to do it, this would be, you know, we sometimes tell God, God, here's how I want you to do things. And what does God say? Nice try. Here's how I'm going to do things. And you're like, oh, God, come on. You can't do it that way. That's not tidy. That's not neat. That doesn't fit my paradigm. That doesn't fit my schedule. That does me, me, me. And what does God say? You're not going to get the glory in this. I am. And I'm going to take you through something painful. I'm going to take you through something weird. I'm going to do something that may seem totally foolish, but in the end, it's so that I get the glory. I'm going to rout your enemies. But I may do it through a way that's very weird. But in the end, would you rather trust the, that's the weird thing? In the end, would you rather trust the weirdness of God or your own strength? I don't think I've ever said the weirdness of God before. But you know what I mean, right? Psalm 42-3. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Many will see and many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here's the deal. <laughs> Sometimes we're in a miry bog of mess, but God's the one that rescues us and puts us on a rock. Let God worry about the messy details and how he's going to work it out. But trust in his ability to take you out of that and put you on the rock. Now there's a symbolism going on in this narrative. What did I say Barak's name meant? Lightning. <clears throat> the conflict is between the king of light, represented by Barak, whose name is Lightning, who fights against the forces of darkness in Sisera. And the true hero of the story is God, who subdued and routed the Canaanites. So that's the narrative. Chapter 4. Chapter 5 is poetry sung, looking back upon this event in poetic musical form, okay? So let's move into chapter 5, where we get to see the poetry. So, part 1, the powerful Lord. So, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So this is a song that they sang. And it's recorded for us. By the way, do you guys remember another song that was sung after a major victory? Miriam's song. Remember the crossing of the Red Sea? What happens right after the crossing of the Red Sea? The Israelites sing a song, the song of Moses, where they sing praises to God for the deliverance. This is almost like that. God delivers them and afterwards they sing a song. So let's look at verses 2 through 11. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. And the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Okay? The powerful Lord. Basically what she's saying here in this song is, Israel is in a period of weakness. They're defenseless. Verse 6, they have to travel the back roads because there's bandits. Verse 7, there's no warriors. Verse 8, they have no weapons. They're desperate, they're hopeless, they're, they're weak, they're defenseless. Sisera is coming against them with 900 chariots. But then who came in power? God came in power. The Lord came. Verses 4 and 5, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, you marched against them. Remember, God routed them. God caused the confusion. So, the beauty of this 
when we think about weakness, weaknesses, helpless, feeble, frail, us, the beauty of the gospel is that God comes to the rescue of weak and helpless sinners for the victory of Christ on our behalf. Are you at times weak? Are you at times defenseless and clueless and helpless? Can I get an amen? Yes, okay, we are. We are clueless and helpless. And what does God say to us? You fools. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap and get your act together. And do it in your own power because I have better things to do with my time in running the universe than to mess with you, crazy little Christian. Does God say that? No. Thank the Lord he doesn't. What do we often do, though, during times of weakness? What do we think we need to do? I need to do something. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstrap. I've got to fix this problem. I've, I, I, I've got to do something. And what does God say? That's the problem. When you begin to do something in your own power is when you're being Lord of your life and not me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What was Paul saying? Man, we were toast. We were dead. We were burdened beyond our strength. We were so weak. We were desperate. And God took us through that so that we would not learn to what? Rely on ourselves, but on God. Okay? So the first part of the song is we were weak, we were helpless. God, you came to our victory. God, you came to our defense. You're a powerful God. Okay? Part two was the people's responsibility. So let me ask you a question. Just because God is sovereign and powerful and holy, does that mean we sit back and do nothing? Okay, let's find out what the people do. In verses 11 through 22. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinalem. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, they were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon is the people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, they fought the kings of Canaan, at Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Merah, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Okay, what's going on here? 
what they're recounting in the song is the different tribes and what they did or didn't do to help in the battle. Okay? What tribes took responsibility to fight? Ephraim, verse 14. Benjamin, verse 14. Zebulon, verse 14. Issachar, verse 15. But some of the tribes thought about helping, but made excuses and didn't join the battle. Reuben thought about it, but didn't want to lead their sheep. Maybe we should go fight, but we really got flocks here we've got to deal with. And if we go fight, we may lose our agricultural business. Gilead, represented by Manasseh, they stayed home. Dan and Asher thought trading was more important, going out to the sea. Sea trading. And then Meroz in verse 23, who knows who Meroz is? Nobody really knows. They did not come to the rescue either and were cursed for it by the angel of the Lord. Okay. So some tribes went to battle and some tribes passively stayed back. The tribes that passively stayed back, the Bible doesn't tell us why they did, but what's a mentality that we can sometimes have if we believe in the sovereignty of God? Here's a, here's a mentality we can sometimes have that's wrong. Though Israel's deliverance is the work of the sovereignty of God, his people are not to sit passively by in fatalism, but take responsibility for their part. What is fatalism? It's all figured out. God's got the universe under control. He's ordained what he's going to ordain. So I don't need to do anything because God... Basically, they're saying, if God's going to fight the battle. I don't need to go fight. The, 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 the tribes that stayed home probably thought in their minds, we believe in a sovereign God. If we don't show up, it's not that big a deal because God's going to get it done without us. Question, is God going to get it done without us? Yes, but that does, does that absolve your responsibility to be part of, the, part of the process? What would you say to me if I stood up on a Sunday morning and said, you know what, God is sovereign, he's got it all figured out, so we shouldn't pray. What would you say to me? You're crazy. Hey, God's sovereign, he's got it all figured out, we know who's going to be saved, who's not going to be saved, so we should never go do evangelism. God's got it all figured out. What would you say to me? You're crazy. God's sovereign. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God's got the finances figured out, so you should not tithe. Or you should not give tithes and offerings on Sunday morning. The elders in my financial section said, you're crazy. Okay. So, just because God is sovereign and God fights our battles and God comes to the rescue of weak people, it does not mean that we passively sit by and just say, well, I don't have a part in the process. You can become what was called a Christian fatalist, where you're like, I believe so much in the sovereignty of God that I'm just going to sit on my, on my hands and do nothing. Here's the principle. God uses means to accomplish his sovereign predetermined ends. And the means that he uses are our prayers, our evangelism, our giving, our ministry. God's got it all figured out. And God's going to do, you know, we're going to have great ministries at this church because God's got it figured out. So don't serve and don't use your spiritual gifts because God's got it all figured out. Don't pray, don't use your gifts, don't give, don't evangelize because God's got it all figured out. We can't play that game. It's half true, right? Does God have it all figured out? Is God going to accomplish his will? Yes. 
But the way that God accomplishes that will that he's going to get done is through our obedience. Now, here's the point. You can choose not to participate in that. Is God's will going to be thwarted because you chose not to participate? No, God's going to still get it done. What he's going to do is he's going to bypass you and use somebody else that's more willing. That's a sad thing. I'd rather much be in on what God's doing than to passively sit by and let another group of people or another person do what, what we're called to do. Okay? So, the first part of the psalm, we're weak, we're clueless, God came to our rescue. The second part, some people participated in the process, some had excuses and didn't. And those that had excuses and didn't are actually faulted for that. The tribes that didn't come are faulted. Now, here's part three. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The tale of two cities, right? This is a tale of two women. There's two women that are told at the end of this. Remember we talked about how the glory is going to go to a woman? We're introduced to another woman. All right, verses 24 through 30. Here we go. Most blessed of woman be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. I love that, tent-dwelling women. She asked for water, or he asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell where he sank. There he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princes answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A wound for two, or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroiled? For the next, a spoil? Two women. Who's woman number one? She comes second in the story. This is the second story. The second woman. Okay, I'm going out of order. Sisera's mother. Who's Sisera? The guy that got tent spiked, okay? His mom is looking through the window waiting for him to come back. And what's she thinking? My son's sure to come back for more. Why is he delaying? Oh, I know why he's delaying. And I would be graphic here, but this is what the song says. The men are raping the women. And it's taking longer to rape the women and pillage the villages and take all the spoils. That's why it's taking him so long to come back. May he come back. He's taking so long. And what do we know the story is? The reason he's taking so long to come back is he's lying dead with the tent spike. That's woman number one. Woman number two is who? Jael, who drove the tent spike into Sisera's temple. Now, notice how <laughs> graphic the song is. This is a song. They're singing a song. Look at verses 26. I mean, I don't know what the, the tune is. We can make up a tune. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. I mean, he fell. He laced, I mean, it's like this graphic depiction of the... <coughs> I mean, they're like singing in graphic detail about every graphic detail of the killing of Sisera in a song. Now, you're thinking to yourself, this is crazy. 
why in the world are they celebrating the death of this general in a song that's so graphic that goes into graphic detail? He's lying dead at my feet. He's sunk. He's dead. He's sinking deeper. I mean, here's the thing about it. I think it was meant to be enjoyed by the Israelites. I think when they're singing this, they're meant to be like, mm, I, I like that. I like that chorus. <laughs> because justice has been served. And we, we as 21st century Americans are like, that's offensive. Remember I talked about a nasty? We don't understand this as Americans, but in closed countries where believers are tortured for their faith, when God acts in judgment on an enemy in somewhat violent ways, I think something in us wants a deep need to see God's justice. I'm going to share with you a passage of scripture in Revelation that you may not have never read before. Revelation 19, 1 through 5. This is after Babylon the harlot is destroyed. And all the enemies of God are destroyed. And the people in heaven are singing a song about God's destruction of his enemies. This is not a song they're singing on earth. This is a song they're going to be singing in heaven. We're going to be singing in heaven. Okay, Revelation 19, 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged of her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. They in heaven, and we in heaven, are praising God for his judgment of sin. And we're not going to be bothered by it one bit in heaven. It's not going to give us, we're not going to be like conflicted. Right now we're conflicted sometimes when we hear these types of things. In heaven we won't be conflicted because we will be in our glorified state and we will long to see God pour out his justice on his enemies. Okay, look at verse 31. 31 is how it ends. So, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. May all your enemies perish, O Lord. This is a prayer for God to conquer his enemies. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. How's God going to destroy his enemies on the final day? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 tells us. This is evidence of the righteous, the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. This is Jesus inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will 
suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus is going to come on that final day in vengeance inflicting judgment upon God's enemies. If you have a problem with God judging his enemies, you have a problem with the Bible. Now we look at this song and we say, that's a really weird song. That they're praising this woman for killing this guy with temple spikes. But as God's people, would we not want God to be just? What would happen at the end of time? God just brushed all the iniquities under the carpet and said, well, let's let bygones be God, bygones, and there's no real justice. How would you feel? Now, before you answer that question, you need to thank God that he did that on Jesus. Because you and I deserve just as much for God to destroy us. Were it not for him punishing Jesus in our place, Jesus taking our wrath, him dying in our place, we are spared the wrath of God to come on that day. But, God, and I tell people this, there's two ways God's wrath is going to be poured out. One, his wrath was poured out on Jesus in your place so you don't have to experience it. Or two, it's going to be poured out on the final day and, and you'll spend eternity in hell. But either way, God's wrath will be poured out on sin. It's either poured out in Jesus on your place or it's either poured out in hell. But either way, God's going to judge sin. Better to have him judge it in Jesus and be connected to Christ by faith than to experience the reality of hell away from the presence of the Lord. Now look at the very last line there. Your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The NIV and the New American Standard have a different word than friends. Does anybody have the NIV or the, the New American Standard? What does it say? It says, let the ones who love you rise in his mind. What's the greatest issue for God's covenant people, Israel, in the time of the judges? We started with it. Okay? Go back to verse 1, chapter 4. We'll bring this, the whole thing to a close. We've only got five minutes left. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died. What's their biggest problem? You may say their biggest problem is they did evil. That's a symptom of the problem. The biggest problem is that they did not truly love God. Deuteronomy 6, 5-6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the Shema. Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. What keeps getting Israel in trouble time after time after time after time? The core issue is they do not love God with all their being and they go after foreign gods in idolatry. 
So, guys, the flip and gals, the flip side of repentance, the flip side of putting to death deeds of the flesh, is to love God or to love Jesus. The two sides of the same coin. The more you love Jesus, the more you're saying no to sin. The more you say yes to sin, the more you're showing you don't love Jesus. They go hand in hand. Instead of going back to slavery, of idolatry, again and again, they should continue to love and worship God with all their being. I challenge you to go through the book of Judges. I may be wrong here. I'm going on a limb here, but I think I'm right. Go to the book of Judges and find anywhere in there where it says the people love the Lord their God. You probably won't find it. What are you going to find instead? The people again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The greatest issue is the heart issue of love. The reason Israel kept in that pattern is because their hearts were not passionately pursuing Christ. And it's the same thing with us. If you don't passionately pursue Christ, if you don't seek the face of Christ, if you don't desire Christ, if you don't want to gain Christ, the alternative is you're going to gain prize value turned to something else. And that's going to be sin. That's going to be idolatry. It's going to be a substitute. And that's really the, the bottom line issue for the Israelites is they did not love God. They loved idols, and they loved their flesh and the bondage to sin more than they did of a living God. 